I know you have heard this before. Work smarter, not harder. Ford has heard it too. That's why the Ford F-150 truck helps you get the job done in the smartest way possible. I mean, the pro-access tailgate alone is a game changer. It improves access to the bed and cargo, which makes it easier to load in tight spaces. See? Smarter. It's also got a mobile power source and pro power on board, so you can power up to 7.2 kilowatts outside your F-150 truck. That is definitely working smarter. And imagine what you can do with that power at your next tailgate party. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The Jericho Network on Westwood One. The following program is a PodcastOne.com production. He's a world champion wrestler, best-selling author, actor, and lead singer of Fozzie. Now, now he's rocking the podcast world. This, this, this is Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho. Starring Chris Jericho. Welcome to Talk is Jericho with Chris Jericho. That's me. I am Chris Jericho. Thank you so much for joining me on the second huge episode of Talk is Jericho with the return of last week's guest, Steve Austin. Stone Cold Steve Austin will be here. What a great, great first show. Super amazing guest. Super amazing guest. Super funny happy hour. Super amazing guest time. Looking forward to talking more with Steve, who will join us again today. So what did you think of the first podcast? Please let me know at I am Jericho on the Twitter. Hashtag it. Talk is Jericho. And what I want to do every week is answer some of your questions. So if you have questions that you would like me to answer, once again, send them to me at I am Jericho, hashtag talk is Jericho, and I will do my best to answer anything that you want uh, me to talk about. I'll do that in the first segment of our show. And don't ask me average questions. (laughs) When are you coming back to wrestling? You know, I mean, it's always a good one. But the answer is, I'm not sure. When I know, you'll be the first one that I, I talk to about. I will let all of you know. But um, I, I think that I would like to kind of take this in a, in, a, in, a, in all directions for this this podcast. This phenomenon known as Talk is Jericho. Similar to what the Nerdist does, what Chris Hardwick does, or what Adam Carolla does, or what Steve does. I got so many interests, so we can talk about all things WWE, all things Fozzie, heavy metal, music in general, books, TV shows. I'm really into uh, American Horror Story Coven. Have you guys watched this? It's a great show. What they do is every season they do self-contained stories. So if you haven't seen season one, you can still watch season two or you can still watch season three. And it, it they don't tie in together. The only similarity is the same actors appear every season but play different characters. So in the first season Jessica Lang played like this really weird 
uh, house owner. Second season, she played a nun in a in an asylum. Third season, this is called Coven, where she plays the Supreme, which is the head of a of a coven, kind of a finishing school for girls, but they're all witches. And she plays this amazing, amazing character called Fiona. She's the Supreme Witch, but she's still very vain. Even though she's a witch, she can like start fires and kill people, and she can resurrect people. But she's still, I think she has cancer, and she doesn't want to lose her hair, and she's very vain. It's just a really, really incredible, cool show, and it's really sick. It's disgusting. There's so many, like, Kathy Bates plays this, like, voodoo socialite serial killer weirdo who back in the 1800s used to keep, like, her slaves literally locked in cages and torture them. Yeah, and this is all on FX, on the FX channel. So then she dies, and then they, um, one of the witches resurrects her, so now she's alive again. She's like, so Kathy Bates versus Jessica Lange versus Patty Lupone, who's amazing on it, uh, versus Angela Bassett. So it's like all these like older MILF diva witches fighting each other. Although I wouldn't call Kathy Bates a MILF. I take that back. Don't really want to call her anything, but she's definitely not a MILF. MILF, of course, being mothers that I love to F. This is a family-friendly show. It's a family-friendly show that we're talking about MILFs. There you go. But they had this really rad scene where uh, there's the Council of Witches who are kind of following Jessica Lang and her, I guess her progress is the Supreme. The Supreme is kind of like the, the head witch. And she has all these crazy bad things that happen, so they're putting her kind of on trial. But then they find out that this one witch is really behind all of Jessica Lang's uh, faux pas, so they decide to burn her. It's like burn the witch. And they walk out to like this place in the desert where there's the stake and it's kind of like this procession with the witches and then the, the witch is going to get burned wearing white and she's handcuffed. And they've got like the song playing in the background, Dr. John. Could have been the right place, but it was the wrong time. Could have been the right place, but it was the wrong time. Could have been the right place, but it was the wrong time. Like that sort of thing, that song. And so it's this kind of cool, like, so it's just like this really awesome scene where they lead her to the to the witch's stake and then they set her on fire, which is so rad. So if you haven't seen that show, if you're looking for something to replace Dexter or looking for something to replace Breaking Bad, give American Horror Story Coven a try. It's really, really cool. One of my favorites. And we did mention Dexter before. I know this is kind of a few months after it happened, but I have to talk about the Dexter season finale. Pissed me right off. Because to me, Dexter is the tale of two shows. There's the show that is one of the best written, amazing plot twist, killer, no pun intended shows. And then at its worst, it was like this plot hole filled, just shitty writing, like very lazy writing and that's kind of how the last episode was, whereas the last season was pretty good. There's a lot of cool turns and twists and turns, but the last episode was awful because, okay, Deborah dies. I mean, the plot spoiler, the plot spoiler, whatever. If you haven't seen the, the Dexter season finale yet, I'm going to spoil it for you. Fast forward this. And if you haven't watched it yet and, you've, and you're mad at me, then I don't care because you should be watching it. So anyway, so Deborah dies like from like natural causes, like she gets shot or something and then like has a heart like heart problem. Like she didn't even die from a serial killer, so it's like the dumbest death ever. And then Dexter goes into the hospital and just walks out the front door holding his sister's dead body. 
even though there's a hurricane coming. So because there's a hurricane, apparently you're just allowed to walk in the hospital and just take any random dead bodies that you want and walk out the front door. And then he puts Deborah in his boat and drives into the oncoming hurricane. Stops driving, takes her body out, throws it in the ocean, watches it sink. Okay, kind of symbolic, not bad. And then drives into the hurricane because he can't survive because he brings bad luck to everybody that he loves. So he leaves his son, he leaves his girlfriend, he leaves his sister, and then rides his boat into the hurricane. Well, not exactly the, the, the best finale. He's not exactly Breaking Bad, but not the worst either. But then, then, the epilogue... We see him at a log camp, and he's got a long beard, and he's working as a lumberjack. Now, meanwhile, he drove into the hurricane, and now they now find pieces of his boat. Like, the hurricane just blew his boat apart. So what did he do? He, he, he swam from southern Miami to Portland, Oregon? Or did he just swim from the middle of the ocean in a hurricane to the shoreline, then get on a plane and fly to... Seattle to join the lumberjack camp. Dumbest finale ever. I was so furious. Like they've got a, a huge show with a, a group of writers all gathered around the table and they're working for months and months and months and months trying to come up with storylines. And this is the best that they can do. Like who sat there and said, okay, this is great. We're going to make him a lumberjack for the last scene. How amazing will that be? Oh, that's good. That's good. Oh, that's good. And the actors had to go for it and, and the, 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 the network. And it's just, ugh, brutal. I'm going to give it a patented Jericho <laughs> raspberry. The Dexter finale gets a... <laughs> I'm going to start adding that to the show. Every week in the first segment, I'm going to answer one of your questions. But since we just got started, I don't have any yet. At I am Jericho. Hashtag talk is Jericho. Ask me questions. Love me. And then I'm going to review something during the week. And if I like it, I'm going to go, yay. And if I don't like it, I'm going to go, Pfft. So American Horror Story gets a, yay. And the Dexter season finale, series finale, gets a, Pfft. There you go. Coming up next, the second part of the amazing Stone Cold Steve Austin interview. And now we're excited to pay some bills so that this podcast can stay free. All right, there are some seriously talented luchadors in AEW, and not all of them speak English, which can make putting together matches a little challenging sometimes. That's why I signed up for Rosetta Stone. I'm learning Spanish, amigos. Hey, amigas, see? Already learning. Haha, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You don't even have to learn Spanish, though, because Rosetta Stone has 25 languages, including French, German, Korean, Arabic, and Polish, and Japanese. That's what I'm going to do next. I spent a lot of time in Japan, and I still work with a lot of Japanese wrestlers at AEW like Takeshita. So having a better handle on the language will definitely show in the ring. Communication is key. And learning Spanish on Rosetta Stone has been so fun and easy. They've got this true accent feature that gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. Sort of like having a personal trainer for your accent. I'm using the app, but you can also do the lessons on desktop or laptop. I also like that I can download the lessons and do them offline, which is perfect for a plane. I can sit there on a flight and work on my Espanol. So don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. 
For a very limited time, Talk is Jericho listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash Jericho. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash Jericho today. That's rosettastone.com slash Jericho. Do it today. You're listening to Talk is Jericho. So on the line, returning from such an amazing conversation last week, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Thank you so much for, for being back, Steve. It was a great, great show last week. So much cool information and cool stories. Um, we were talking about WCW, and you, we were talking about Barry Windham and all the experience. How was it working with Ricky Steamboat? Was, it, was he one of your favorites when you were starting? Uh, when you were first starting out? Well, man, one of my favorites starting out. That guy's one of my favorites, hands down, throughout my whole career. And I remember before I started working with Ricky Steamboat, uh, Ravishing Rick Root had uh, kind of completed his run with WWF at the time, came down to WCW. So Steamboat and Root were working a big loop, a big uh, rivalry, and were pretty much, you know, main event, or, you know, maybe Sting was, but, you know, I was somewhere on that card, probably in mid-pack. And uh, Rick got hurt. Rick Root got hurt. And all of a sudden, I jumped in his spot, and I started working with Steamboat. And I'll tell you what, Mister, you talk about an eye-opener. Uh, and, again, at that point, I'd had a couple of years in the business, and I really was, you know, had my mechanical chops going. And all of a sudden, you get in there with a guy like Steamboat, who I've seen Steamboat's probably his first few matches that he ever had way back in the day. And that guy was always good. His green stuff is <laughs> better than uh, many guys' five- and eight-year stuff. Yes. So it was just uh, absolutely incredible. And we had chemistry in the ring. And uh, like I said you know, last week, he was, a, he was a guy that, you know, you did something. You grab a, a headlock on that guy, he's going to top wrist lock. You know, if you headlock, take him over, he's going to head scissor you. You know, he's gonna. You don't have to tell him every move to do. He goes and does that, and that's what's so fun about working with him. Because all of a sudden, you present him with something, he throws something back, and you think, okay, this is where this guy wants to go, but I'm going here. So, uh, Steamboat, one of the greatest of all time, his fire, his passion, uh, his execution, and he's just a whole gimmick. I mean, Steamboat. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. In 2009, we did a thing where I was working with the the Hall of Famers, and it was a Handicap match, me versus Snooker, Piper, and Steamboat. And I actually lobbied to get Steamboat in the match. Vince wanted Greg Valentine, but I got Steamboat in there. And Steamboat hadn't worked in probably five or six, seven, eight years or so. And Steamboat in his mid-50s, after not working in seven or eight years, was still 80% better than 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 than. 80% of the roster. He, he was better than, than almost all the roster at that stage in his career uh, than most of the guys. That's just how naturally good he is. I think I remember that. Didn't he blow up a little bit towards the end? He blew up a little bit towards the end because he hadn't worked so, so, uh, in so much, but we worked again the next night in, a, I think, a 10-man tag, and he stole the show. And then Vince put him back on the road for the next five or six months, kind of working as a coach-trainer. And we worked a couple other times. We worked a, a, another pay-per-view match, and then we worked four singles matches, one of them in Tokyo, one of them in Honolulu, one of them in Greensboro, South Carolina, and all those matches got successively better to where the last one we had was actually one of my favorite matches, like a quote-unquote five-star match, if you can call if you can call it that. He got so much, he got so good so quickly because he's Steamboat. Well, you know, again, you know, uh, everything the guy did looked good, and it didn't hurt. 
Yes. That was the thing, man. I mean, he could do the chops, you know, nothing like Danny Davis chops, man. I remember one time I was in a we, – we were doing like a uh, – it was, it was in Tennessee, and we had to do kind of like a battle royal. And uh, I uh, threw Danny Davis in a corner and chopped him three times. And I said, I said, reverse me, start chopping. So Danny reversed me, put me in a turnbuckle, and started chopping my ass off. Uh-huh. Holy smokes! <laughs> I rolled out of that dang. Uh, uh, I got out of that corner, got away from Danny. And I remember, uh, you know, I'd already went back to the dressing room. Danny was still working, and I went over to uh, Danny's locker, and I, I left him a note. I said, "Screw you!" I actually, it said, "F you and your chops." <laughs> as, as a rib for when he came, because I never called a chop spot with Danny Davis again. But going back to Steamboat, you know, those Steamboat chops, you know, were kind of with a soft hand, and they looked good, but they didn't kill you. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he was very, very, um, like you said, his his work rate was, was off the charts, never hurts you, um, and just a natural. And, and, and another natural that you worked with very closely in WCW was Brian Pillman. How did you guys become uh, become close? And it doesn't surprise that you did because you have very similar personalities. <laughs> Brian Pillman. Uh, we're, we're in Dothan, Alabama, or, or Columbus, Georgia. It's one of those towns down there when we were based out of WCW where we did a lot of our television tapings. And, man, I was fixing to be put with Harley Race and given a run as United States champion. And so I was really looking forward to that television taping because, man, when you get a chance to run with an eight-time world champion, Harley Race is your manager. That is going to be a push of a lifetime. And so Dusty's booking at the time, and here comes Flying Brian, who I just kind of knew, you know, kind of casually because we were, you know, traveling down the same roads together, being at the same carts. And he comes up to me, you know, uh, Brian, just call everybody Kid. Hey, Kid, that's where I got it from. He goes, hey, Kid, come here. I said, what's going on? He goes, well, we need to come up with a finish. We're a tag team now. I said, what the F are you talking about, dude? I said, I'm fixing to go on a singles run with Harley Race. He goes, no, we're a tag team. We've got to think of a finishing move. Go talk to Dusty. Wow. So I went over and talked to Dusty. I said, hey, Dusty. I said, man, what's the deal? Brian says we're a tag team now. Yeah, baby, we're going to put you guys in a tag team. And so, you know, we're a tag team. So that's when, you know, I went out there with those garbage blue and black trunks I had. And Brian had those Cincinnati Bengals trunks. And we were just kind of a interim tag team, seemingly, to get guys over. And so, you know, that's when Brian and I are going to be at the same shows all the time. We started traveling together. And many times, uh, Scotty the Body, Raven, would, would travel with us as well. And we struck up a friendship. The chemistry was developed. Uh, Brian came up with the Hollywood Blondes name. He, you know, we got to have gold chains. We've got to have matching trunks. We've got to have the vests. All Brian's ideas. And we just uh, became like brothers going up and down the road. And when he got in the ring... I could damn near read his mind. When I was in the ring, he could read my mind. You know, this was real tag team wrestling, Chris, not right. this kind of stuff that, you know, you see some guys just get thrown in there and go try to create a tag match. You know, we were really a team. We'd cut off the ring and work together, you know, feet right. in on bumps, you know, use the referee in the right way. And so, man, I, we knew what each other was trying to do. And so I really, really enjoyed working with Flying Brian and really enjoyed, you know, probably just the friendship that I had with him more than anything. You know, it's interesting to me. Like, I always, they had Eddie Guerrero and I tag in WCW for a short period of time. 
and then kind of cut it off for no apparent reason when I thought we could have been you know the biggest thing in the company or one of them at least because we had the same thing great chemistry great character could work with anybody and I kind of feel they did the same thing with Hollywood Blondes they kind of cut you guys off uh, too early in my opinion well and it doesn't make sense uh, there there was not there wasn't any uh, lack of depth in the singles uh, division. And we got over, you know. Right. And a lot of people, a lot of people, uh, you know, a lot of people call it the Hollywood Blondes, you know. One, I don't, I, I don't think we're one of the greatest tag teams of all time. But there are some people who got to consider us on that list. I think, you know, had we stayed together two, three more years, yeah, we could definitely I agree. be on that list. But uh, we didn't have enough matches uh, underneath us to, to really do that. But uh, the thing that, that's really disappointing to me is tag team wrestling is no longer exists. There are certain guys that are just designed to be tag team wrestlers. Yeah. And that's when they're at their best. I mean, just take, for instance, Midnight Express and Rock and Roll Express. For that matter, the Road Warriors. You know, the yeah. Killer Bees. You know, those were tag... And I could go on and on and on, but I just, I'm just i just saying those, those sure. just jump off at me right now. And, yeah, on the one-off, they could have a singles match every here and there. But, you know, it's okay for, for you know, a team to last 10, 15 years, that's awesome because that's when you really get good tag team wrestling. Absolutely, and that's something the WWE and WCW had so much depth in the 80s and even early 90s that they got completely away from that. It's almost like tag team. I think Vince's attitude was I could just take two guys and put them together and it's the same thing, but it's not because there's certain psychology. And like you said, even though tag teams, there's a lot of times one stands out more than the other Bret Hart out of you know out of the Hart Foundation or Sean out of the Rockers but you know Marty and and Jim they were never bigger than when they're in the, that tag team they played that role perfectly yeah and, and like you said you just mentioned you know a couple of guys that, that were going to break out and be big single stars but again you know some of the, some of those people you know that I mentioned I mean they were you know tag team wrestlers mm-hmm yeah, absolutely and then that's kind of what their niche was yes Dude, I mean uh, you know I used to love it. A great, a great tag team match is very hard to beat by a single. There, if you have two over tag teams that are white hot with issues, you know, versus you know that white hot singles match, just just the dynamics through uh, through math of all the different matchups and things that can happen, the tag team, you know could theoretically steal the show every single night. I agree, because it gives, it gives a little bit of different variety, too. Like you said, there's so many combinations and things you can Always do. ways to play that referee. That's right, exactly. There's so much stuff you can do with, with a good tag team, good tag team chemistry, you know. But, um, so, so, so the time comes, you, you end up getting fired from WCW via, was it a phone call or via FedEx? That was a phone call, and a the phone FedEx call. came the next day. <laughs> and what was the reasoning for that? Well, it was basically uh, exactly what Eric Bischoff said, Steve. Based on based on the amount of days you've been incapacitated and the amount of money we're paying you, we're going to go ahead and exercise our right to terminate the agreement. Mm-hmm. So you and were said, you were well, basically, hurt. You're telling me I'm fired, right? <laughs> yeah, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so this is right when I had uh, uh, torn my tricep off my elbow. And I was making my, uh, you know, I was uh, making my recovery. I was going to be a few more weeks. I'd been out for several months. You know, when you have a tricep reattached, it takes a while to grow back. 
So it was during that time, and, and prior to that, I'd had some knee issues, you know, and messed up some knees. And so, hey, man, I was a, a hard-working guy and put it all on the line. But you know, with some debilitating injuries, you just can't make your shots. And so, anyway, that was the, that was the way he broke down firing me. I think it had something to do with that, and him just not seeing, you know, a big future for a guy with thinning, long blonde hair called Stunning Steve Austin. And although I was very you know, angry when I got fired because, you know, that was my job and I, I need my job to pay my bills. When I look back and look look through Eric Bischoff's eyes at where he was and my look, my character, or lack of, and what I was presenting, you know, I, I don't blame him for making the decision that he made at all. You, you know, it's funny because, you know, I was in the same boat and I didn't get fired by Eric, but Eric kind of said the same type of stuff to me as far as not being marketable, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, Eric is a very smart guy, but like you said, it's it, it, it was a different world for him back in those days. And I think, like you said, I don't blame him really for not seeing it in me either, because I was really not showing the same attributes or qualities that I that I kind of found, you know, years later. So I think a lot of fans or a lot of critics will say, "What an idiot! That stupid bastard!" You know, fired Austin and let Jericho go and did this and did that. But at the time, maybe we weren't as good as we thought we were. Well, it's an it's evolution process, man. I mean, look, look at a, a couple of guys, the, the heavy hitters that you tour with currently, uh, or sometimes, you know, I mean, look, look, look at Metallica's start. To oh, absolutely. When they got really got hot. Look, look at Slayer's start mm-hmm. when they really got hot. I mean, you know, they're... There's an evolution that takes place, and you got to go through those. It's like I can I could sit there, and I don't like to name names in the current WWE locker room right now, of guys that, as we see them now, they're not complete. They're still filling out the process, trying to find out who and what they are, and a lot of guys with substantial television time invested in them. But, right. You know, and they'll either find that right combination, or they'll continue to be journeymen. So it's always a work in progress, and then you finally stumble across, you know, by hook or by crook, fluke, luck, or planning, what's going to be, uh, what's going to work for you. Well, and that's the thing. You know, it's interesting to me because you, you, we, we kind of had similar career paths, but in, in, you know, kind of flip flop versions. But you spent some time in ECW. Do you feel that's kind of where the, the 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 Stone Cold character had its evolution, or, or the seeds of, of of the birth of Stone Cold happened in, in your time in ECW? Man, a lot of people say that was kind of the, the genesis or the the launching point for you know what the promos would become. But you know, probably I would have to say yes, but not so much Stone Cold. It was, but it was the fact that you know Paul Lee was able to help me focus and deliver a message. A message with meaning and feeling, because it was a straight-up shoot. <laughs> and I'm not—I'm not alluding to a shoot promo, but alluding to what makes a great promo. Mm-hmm. And you know, I can hear somebody flap their gums all day long, but you got to feel that to believe it. And so, Paulie, I think, pointed me in the, in the right direction and gave me the platform to do that, whereas I hadn't been before and any time before when I got any kind of mic time, uh, whether it was with, like, the Hollywood Blondes or maybe a, a little bit of a singles-type thing. It was kind of following, at the time, the stereotypical yes. uh, gimmick promo that everybody was cutting, you know, 
that didn't really carry any weight. I mean, I was attempting to cut those promos that I, you know, emulated those that, that weren't really carrying any gravity or weight. And, you know, I was just well, a, a guy with thin and blonde hair flapping his gun. <laughs> well, the best the best characters are always your uh, your natural personality just turned up to the to the you know to the nth degree. And I think that's kind of what the ECW promos allowed you to do. It allowed you to be yourself, basically, be Steve Austin, sarcastic, over-the-top, funny, but just do it in a way where you could actually portray this new character that you hadn't, that no one had ever actually seen before. Well, that was an interesting environment because at that time I really felt that uh, the promos coming out of e- ECW, by and large, across the board, were the best promos in wrestling at that time. Well, I agree. I, I think at that point in time, and it's funny, too, because I think it's uh, the the impact or the... Uh, pioneering aspect of ECW has kind of been downplayed over the years, but if you go back to 94, 95, 96 when you were there, when I was there, that was the most revolutionary quote-unquote coolest company in the, on the planet, by far. There was some great stuff going on there, some horrific stuff as yeah. well. Uh, and, you know, some of the guys, uh, I don't know if you've seen this or not, have you seen uh, ECW Barbar City? It was kind of like no. a documentary behind the scenes thing. A lot of guys that kind of went through the meat grinder there no. and came out kind of really worse for the wear. An interesting uh, DVD. You ought to get, a, get get your hands on it. And uh, that could be a conversation for another day down the road. But, yeah. uh, you know, there, there was some really good stuff that came out of ECW and uh, pushed the envelope uh, from, a, from a, you know, wrestling presentation standpoint. Uh, just the organic, raw sure. brutality of it. Again, now you, you could go too far in that direction, and it becomes, you know, once you try to keep out doing yourself with violence, <laughs> you book yourself in a real hard corner. And I think ultimately that's that's what happened there. But along the way, it was a great ride. Did you go there because you had a non-compete? Were you kind of killing off some time before you could go to the WWE, or how, how, how did that come about? No, I didn't have a non-compete, man. I was fired. I was fired. fired. I was free to go, do whatever I wanted to do. I just, you know, like a while ago, we, uh, last week, we said, you know, uh, you got to pick up the phone and call people. Right. But in the wrestling business, you never want to make the first call. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> always, I mean, really, you always want the wrestling promoter to call you. So, you know, you're, you're in demand. You're not asking him for a job. Now, don't get me wrong. Many of us have picked up the phone and asked for a job, but but in a perfect world, the best situation is for them to call you because yes. they want you, right? Right. So especially anyway, at that stage of the rang. game, especially yeah, that. I'd yeah. already been to uh, you know my contract was kind of coming to a close in WCW. I was starting to. Uh, I talked to Vince McMahon three times. I'd flown up there the last time. Went to his house in Greenwich. Talked with him and Bruce Pritchard, and it might have been Jim Ross, but I could see that, you know, they didn't really have any plans for me as far as making me a superstar. They had plans for me to just come in and be a mechanic, another body. You know, I was doing good things in ECW, and they they caught wind of that. But still, they weren't ready for me to bring me in as a star. Or, right. You know, I thought they'd have a better plan than they did. So I wasn't really interested in going to WWF yet. Paulie called me literally the day after I got fired. My arm was still healing. And so I said, hey, man, uh, when he called me and said, hey, come to work for me, I said, Paul, I can't work. My arm's busted. He goes, you ain't got to work. Just cut promos. Hmm. And so we, we came up with a, you know, uh, a little payment thing that for the, how much I would make when I went up there. And, you know, they filmed once a week. And then I would fly to Philly, you know, go do my thing, pre-tapes, vignettes, little stuff like that, kind of start working on that character. And it all started from that. 
But but what I'm saying though, so so finally they finally made the call to 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 bring you up there when it was time and and told you you were going to be the ringmaster. Well, yeah, that's when I'd been working for ECW for right. a couple of months, and I was I lived in a log cabin there in uh, <laughs> of Atlanta, Georgia, on ten acres, and phone rings, and it was Vince. And I, Steve Vince. Hey, Vince, what's going on? Meg, how you doing, pal? Listen, I got a great idea for you. Uh, I'd like to bring you in. I'd like to call you the ringmaster. You know, the master of the ring. Ha, 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 ha. Well, Ted DiBiase is your manager. Uh, we'll make you the million-dollar champion. You come in as a champion, and, yeah, that's it, pal. I want you to be the ringmaster. So, you know, all of a sudden, you know, Vince makes it sound like a million Of bucks. course. Sound like the greatest idea sliced bread. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so I said, okay, Vince, sounds good to me because I was making, you know, whatever I was making at ECW, which wasn't much. One day a week, yeah. I had a family and houses. You know, those gimmicks they sent in the mail called Bills. I had a lot of them. <laughs> so the ringmaster sounds like a premier idea to me. So then they fly me to Chicago and you remember Terry and Julie, the seamstresses, yeah. who still work there and make the, the greatest costumes for the guys in the world. Uh, where they sent me up there to talk with them, and uh, originally they wanted me to wear uh, an emerald green singlet, and you know because it was the color of money. <laughs> and you know I think uh, that was about it. And then uh, I said, no, nah, I think I wore the emerald green trunks one time, I think. And then went back to my basic black trunks. But you know, I think I showed up with Hollywood blonde boots. I had white boots with a black star. Yeah. Didn't have a ring vest. I mean, it, it, if this was supposed to be the ringmaster and uh, the master of the ring with the million dollar belt, it was a piss poor, uh, <laughs> you know, a piss poor uh, offering at best. But nonetheless, that was the start. But I, I, you just you hit the nail on the head. I used to talk to, with Taker actually about this. How Vince is like a he's like a Jedi, a wizard. You could go in there with the worst piece of crap idea, but he would make it sound like it was the greatest thing ever, and you would walk out of there, out of his office, feeling so excited and so happy, and then five minutes later go like, what did I just agree to? This is awful. Well, yeah, but by, by, by the same token, you could walk in there you know, mad as a hornet because of the situation of hand that, at hand that was going on, and this was pissing you off, that was bothering you, and you had an issue with this, and all of a sudden you walked in there and, you know, do that... 60, uh, that famous 60-minute head spin when all of a sudden, blah, 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 blah. Hey, hey, pal, guy, you know, shake your head, hit you on the back, see you, walk out the door, you're laughing or joking and smiling, <laughs> man, that was badass. And you get about another 15 feet down the road, it's like, hold it. Everything is exactly the way it was That's before right. I went in. <laughs> Nothing has changed. The situation is exactly the same, but he Jedi mind tricked you into thinking that everything was <laughs> yeah. cool. So you, you, can, you can't knock on his door and go back because you just shook his hand and told him everything was cool. Yep. He was the master of doing that. He sure is. talking about the master, exactly. So you're the ringmaster. It, it, I never really even knew what the ringmaster was. It, it, just kind of a guy that was there. You know it's not going anywhere. You know you got to make a change. We all know the story about how you came up with the name Stone Cold, but what was your idea in, in like in making this change? Like, what did you want to do? Like, I have to start making a personality out of this, or what, what was your idea? Well, uh, you know, first you can let me go through the just the embarrassment of having to be the ringmaster. Oh, please, I knew that idea <laughs> sucked, and uh, you know, I, as, as stunning Steve Austin with with uh, you know six years in business, you know, I was you know. Re- very respected amongst my peers as being a hard worker Absolutely. mechanic in a ring and a pretty good dude and a guy that was going to give you everything he had going to the ring. 
And so all of a sudden, you know, you get that ego check and you lose your identity because studying Steve wasn't much, but it's who I was. Right. And so now here's this fresh start as the ringmaster and you're walking out to the ring and you're just thinking, oh, God, here we go. I'm going to give this my best, you know, and, you know, you – I remember that first uh, that first promo I, I did out there with Brother Love, and you know I, I I swung for the fence. I did the best I could, and it was what it was, and it wasn't bad. But you know it's hard to you know get out of that you know frame of mind and have to check that ego at the door, leave your past right. behind you, and and was six years almost basically yeah. start from scratch. So anyway, then I come up with a Stone Cold name because. I know that I'm driving down the road, and this is back when they needed guys for Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart to to beat inside the squared circle. I was that guy. So even though I had a bad gimmick, they were calling me the ringmaster. I was working with the best talent in the world. I was working with Shawn and Bret. They were beating me every single night, and I was looking up at the lights, and I didn't mind that one bit. That was great. Yeah. Uh, and those guys knew that I could go, and uh, it was refreshing for them to, to be able to work with me, and, and you know, I could I could put up and, and and go with them. So I knew that the ringmaster was never going to be on the top of a marquee. I knew that the ringmaster just didn't have the capability to sell T-shirts, and you know I really didn't have any idea how many T-shirts could be sold. I can look far enough down the road and see Ringmasters not being a great gimmick. Plus, the Ringmaster so, wasn't even a gimmick. What was the gimmick? It was just, it was just your it name. He's supposed to be the master of the ring. You know, it's kind of like a play upon the Ringmaster yeah. of a circus. No, I got you, you but, know, the but guy that's leading everything. So I'm going to be the ultimate wrestler. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So that was basically it. The guy was just a hell of a wrestler. And you know, gotcha. Counts. I have no amateur wrestling background whatsoever. You know, <laughs> I'm a football background. Right. And I think I know like six holes, and you know most of it was beer drinking and middle fingers as it would come to me. But that was okay because the people dug it. But to, so anyway, as the Stone Cold thing started, you know, then it was like you know it was all a work in progress and just following into basically me applying my competitive mindset in a shoot sport like football into the creative work aspect of pro wrestling, and that's killer, uh, you know, a killer mentality, bust ass, you know. Think, shoot, but think, think, shoot, but work, and be aggressive and relentless, and and that's you know kind of what started you know, and and also talking that South Texas trash that I grew up, mm-hmm. you know, uh, hearing you know all throughout my days of uh, you know and being here in Texas and hunting and, and playing football, and so just knowing that I needed to you know up who I was from a salt and pepper on a steak. Okay, what you have, Chris, as you know. You, the, what you do in the ring is a steak. Right. Now, what you do outside of that stuff is the salt and pepper on that steak. And I mean, your your, your promos, your look, your nuances, you know, your your gear, you know, it's it's all. But you got to have a base, and your base uh, of what you do is in the squared circle. And I know we've had some great talkers who weren't necessarily great workers, but you know, by it, it all starts and stops to me with what goes on in the ring and everything right. else. You know, follow suit. But so tell me about the conversation that you had when you went to Vince to tell him, "Listen, the ringmaster ain't happening. I want to change to Stone Cold Steve Austin." Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd kind of you know seen that uh, that that special on that serial killer. Yeah, and you know that's when they they sent me the you know, all the bad names. But I just what was the bad was it what was the what was the worst one? Frigid Frank or something? No, no, no. It was uh, Fang McFrost, <laughs> Autobahn <laughs> Ruthless. And Ice Dagger, temperature-based name off a cold-blooded guy that I had seen, you know. Right. 
So anyway, I came up with the name, and so then I called uh, Vince. I said, Vince, I said, I got it. I said, I said, man, I said, I want to be called. St-. No, Jerry Briscoe was actually my go-to guy back then. I called Jerry, and I said, hey, Jerry, I said, I, said, I came up with the gimmick, uh, my name. I said, I want to be Stone Cold Steve Austin, and I want to be from Victoria, Texas. And Briscoe said, okay, I'll run it by Vince, and uh, we'll run through legal, see what happens. Yeah. So anyway, they go through all the things, you know, because they want to trademark everything. Right. And it's that starving rock and roll artist, you know, trying to get a, get a chance just to get a product out there or a foot in the door or, you know, some kind of leeway. So, you know, hey, everything clears. You're Stone Cold Steve Austin. You're from Victoria, Texas. And so I remember showing up at TV a week or two later uh, from Victoria, Texas, Stone Cold Steve Austin. No fanfare, no nothing. I remember Scott Hall coming up to me. He just came in the company, or we were crossing paths, or whatever the deal was. But yeah. you know, this is before they left. Right. This is before they left. And he goes, hey, man, what's with the Stone Cold thing? And I said, hey, man, it's just uh, just an idea, you know. It's just, and I kind of cut a little bit of a little bit of a promo for him. I said, it's, it's just an idea, man. It is what it is. You know, the way, uh, you know, yes. Razor talks. He goes, okay, dude, sure enough, it turned out to be an okay thing. Yeah, that's right. It sure did. It sure did. Hey, we'll be right back after this. We're going to pay some bills to keep this podcast free. We're going to talk more with Stone Cold Steve Austin coming up right after this. More Talk of Jericho. Stick around. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. This this is Talk is Jericho. Welcome back to the Talk is Jericho. We got Steve Austin here telling some great stories about the ascension of Stone Cold Steve Austin. Obviously, the biggest catchphrase of all time, Austin 316. Was that something that you wrote, or did you just say it off the top of your head? Hey, man, you know, check it out, Chris. You know, what happened was we were in the Madison Square Garden, and Scott Hall and Kevin Nash were fixing to go down south to WCW. And they were, that's when the, the infamous curtain call happened. Right. And uh, they, all those guys from the clique went out there and hugged. And so those guys went down south, and Shawn Michaels and Triple H, who had also you know, been, been a part of the big hug, they broke kayfabe. Uh, you know, in Madison Square Garden, dude, that's hallowed ground. Absolutely. You don't break kayfabe back in the day in Madison Square Garden. So mm-hmm. those guys went down south. Uh, Shawn Michaels, very tempestuous or temperamental back in the day, you know, yes. he rubbed Shawn the wrong way and he had a real bad attitude and Vince couldn't put the screws to him because he was his number one guy, he was his world champion. So Triple H was going to win the King of the Ring in 1996, he was going to get a big shove, but because of that curtain call, Vince had to put the heat on somebody and he put it on Triple H. So I remember we was up there in Lowell, Massachusetts one day, somewhere about there, and I'm walking across the parking lot, and I didn't know Vince real well at the time. And uh, he goes, hey, Steve, you got a second? And I said, yeah, man, what's going on? He said, well, I just want to let you know in two weeks you're going to win King of the Ring. So I said, well, okay. And I just went on about my business, you know. Yeah. So I was like plan B. So, you know, none of this would have never happened, Chris, had, not, had they not done that curtain call. And, you know, Triple H would have got that win. So as it turns out, we go to uh, Milwaukee Mecca Arena, my first match is with Mark Merrow, and he does a little whirly gig movement, and he kicks me in the mouth, busts my lip wide open. Right. 
they take me to the hospital during the middle of the show. Wow. I get 14 stitches to, get 14 stitches to close my lip. I come back, and we're going to cut the match down so I ain't got to, you know, screw my lip up. And Vader had done a number on Jake the Snake Roberts' ribs, so Jake was already theoretically incapacitated to a degree. I would take his, you know, advantage of his ribs that were busted up by Vader, take off the ace bandages, hit him with the stunner, and, you know, win the king of the ring. That's what happened Right. Uh, in a fairly short match. Uh, so, to, you know, to kind of protect the, the mouth and the stitches. So, anyway, before that match happened, I come rolling back into the ambulance. And I'm still in my ring gear. And, man, if, this, if, if Michael P.S. Hayes wouldn't have come up to me and told me, hey, man, I just want to let you know that while you were gone, Jake the Snake Robert Roberts cut a religious-based promo on you. So you might want to remember that when you do your king of the ring speech. And I said, hmm. And instantly, the John 316 popped into my mind because me being the big football right. fan that I am back in the day, anytime someone kicked the field goal or uh, extra point after a touchdown, there would always be a John 316 sign in, in the uh, football stadium. Right. So I said, ah, oh, that's it, Austin 316. And that's all I had. And so we go out there. I win the match, go up there. Michael Hayes does uh, the little interview. And, uh, boy, I start rolling. I start running Jake down about getting a cheap ball of Thunderbird and get his ass out of the WWE and all this other stuff. And, uh, you know, basically just off the cuff, I said, you know, you sit there and thump your Bible and say your prayers, and it didn't get you anywhere. You talk about your Psalms, talk about John 3.16. Austin 3.16 says, I just whooped your ass. <laughs> and, dude, that's pretty strong back in the day. Sure thing. So... so Anyway, so that that happened. I hit a grand slam with that one, and I kept run, running, my, you know, my promo, which was just totally off the cuff, total shoot. And then this was back when Vince was was announcing, and on the RF mic, the house mic, I could hear him kind of wrapping things up. So I'm thinking, oh, Vince is trying to throw it to another match. I need to wrap up this promo and get out of this. Right. So I just said, you know, uh, whoever gets the shot, whether it's Davey Boy, Shawn Michaels, you're looking at the next WWF champion. And that's the bottom line, because Stone Cold said so. So it was total chance, total fluke, and I hit two grand slams and one at bat that I was never supposed to get in the first place. And this is when you were still a heel. So they made the Austin 316 shirt fairly quickly after that, correct? Yeah, that's when they made the shirt, and they just started flying off the rack. Now, is that the the, the highest-selling wrestling T-shirt of all time? Man, it has been credited. It has been credited as such. Uh, I think there's been a few other claims of people that think that they've had the, the number one selling shirt. But at the peak of the business, the way uh, the merchandise started flying off the rack, you would have to prove to me on on paper that there's been a hotter shirt than that one that sold more. I mean, that shirt was everywhere. I mean, that was the biggest. I remember being in WCW at the time. Uh, when you did that, or, or soon after afterwards, and everybody in the crowd was wearing an Austin 316 shirt. And the NWO shirt was popular too, but there was more Austin 316 shirts at the WCW shows than any WCW merch for sure. Yeah, you know, I remember it was funny. Uh, you know, one time we were uh, told us wrestling story the other day. We were in Scranton, Pennsylvania, or one of those towns, Hershey. And, you know, it was right when I came back from getting dropped on my head. And they put me in a lot of tag matches, six-man six matches, just to kind of get me out there to keep me hot, but also just to come in on a shine spot and not take any bumps. And, man, I went out there, and it was me, Taker, and somebody else against three other guys. 
And there was a sea of Austin 316 shirts out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was incredible. So I tagged in. It had been about a, you know, a month or two after I'd been back and took a couple of bumps, you know, just because I had to, you know, for the crowd. And I remember tagging out, and an Undertaker looked over at me without breaking his character or his gimmick. And he, he said underneath his breath, what the F are you doing out there, boy? Because, you know, I wasn't supposed to be taking any bumps. But I had to because I saw those 316 shirts. So, and it goes like last week we were talking about Undertaker, how, how, fu how funny and cool and uh, yeah. you know, low-key. He's like cool hand Luke. Yeah, that's right. man persona. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's actually something, too. When you got, you, you mentioned getting dropped on your head, it was obviously in a, a mistimed spot with, with Owen Hart. Does does that still affect you to this day? Is that one of the reasons why you eventually had to retire because of that, that neck injury? Yeah, you know, I had some, uh, you know, I bruised my spinal cord and it kind of made my, uh, my reflexes in my legs a little different, you know, and a couple other you right. know, issues, uh, but not to get into detail. But yeah, I still I still got some damage from that, and you know I always will. But you know, by and large, you know for the most part, you know I get around, do all my my normal stuff that I do. I work out like a damn animal again. I just had you know last uh, I think eleven months ago I had an ACL PCL put in my left knee, right, and yeah. I'm squatting in the uh, in the mid threes for reps now. Uh, don't get me wrong, I'm probably in in as good a shape or better shape than I've been in a long time. But it, it did wreak some havoc that you know it's kind of half-ass irreversible which is so ironic because it was right on the cusp of you getting to become this super super duper star it must have been kind of a scary moment to know how close you came to not ever working again or walking even hey man when, when that happens when you get dropped on your head and you know the top of your head it's like i watch a lot of football and that's called an axial load and that uh, compresses a C3, 4, or 4, 5 vertebrae, and that's the number one cause of quadriplegia in uh, football right. players or, you know, in accidents. And a lot of people think a whiplash is what does it. No, it's not. It's getting dropped and compressing those nerves. And, uh, you know, on top of that, I had some spinal stenosis without a whole lot of room in that spinal cord to deal with anyway. So, you know, I'll tell you what, man, when you're laying in there in front of 20,000 people uh, and you can't move nothing and you look at the lights, It'll uh, it'll scare the hell out of you, yeah. and it you know, kind of hurt too. You know? so <laughs> yeah, it, it was a tough day at the office, but you know, hey man, things happen in the ring, and that was mm -hmm. one of those things. But it, it wasn't fun, and it scared the hell out of me. But you know, and I, I, I look back and I watch that thing. I've watched that replay, man, a couple hundred times out there throughout the years. Really? I, I, yeah, at, for a while, you know, it helped me deal with you know where I was and you know uh, why I had to retire. So. You know, now I don't watch it at all. Uh, sure. As a coping mechanism, back in the day, I did. Well, let's move forward to, to one of my favorite matches in WrestleMania history, if not my fam favorite. WrestleMania 13, Austin versus Bret Hart. The reason why I love this match, it was the ultimate double turn that, in my opinion, the fans didn't know they wanted, even though they wanted it until you gave it to them. How did you guys put together that match? Was that mostly called in the ring? What was the the mindset behind it? And how was it working with Bret Hart as a as a as a performer? Well, you know, when Bret made his came comeback, you know, he had taken uh, some time off to have some shaved down in his knee in '96. So when he came back to SummerSlam, I think that was the match in Square Garden. He requested working with me, and like Bret has gone on record as saying, he saw me coming a long time before I did and, and knew that you know, we could make money together. Right. And I'll, I'll never forget the first time I worked uh, Shawn Michaels in Houston at the Summit. 
you know, Brett was on the main event that night, or maybe he'd already worked, and I was working with with uh, Shawn Michaels, and we tore the house down. And Brett came up to me and goes, hey, man, that was a good match. He goes, I'll work with you any day of the week. Mm-hmm. And I said, thanks, man. And, you know, you know Brett Harper's always cool. Yeah. So, anyway, uh, so and as far as uh, WrestleMania 13 goes, I'll never forget, you know, we go into the uh, finish room. Well, let me, let me go back. I had hurt a knee. I was sitting on my house on Monday Night Raw in San Antonio, and that's when I heard the matchup and a submission match, Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Bret the Hitman Hart. Oh, you didn't know and about it? Submission, no, man, I'm not a submission wrestler either. <laughs> so I was mad as a hornet. And so I'm wondering how we're going to you know, accomplish this match. And we kind of changed it to the kind of the ramifications that it did. So we go to the finish room, and it's me, Bret, and Vince, and, you know, hey, man, you're going to pass out in a sharpshooter. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, eh. You know, of course, Brett's down with it, and, uh, you know. So, anyway, we left the finish room. I mm-hmm. kind of walked around the arena for a little bit, came back talked to Vince about 15 minutes later and said, hey, Vince, I said, are you sure this finish is going to work? And he goes, Steve, I'm telling you, it'll work. And I said, mm-hmm. okay. And Jay Menace is your promoter, you know. Sometimes right. I think Vince has made uh, a, a, a bad call every now and then, but, you know, when you, when you have the guy who owns the company – telling you, you that's know, right that he's in the business to make money you've got to believe it absolutely he has that knowledge and you know we're all trying to make money so if he believes it's going to make money i'm on board so we did it me and brett went out to the arena we just kind of milled around a little bit and talked and man chris if you just kind of held your hand out in front of you and spread your fingers you could look at the fingers as being main points and then all the rest was gaps to be filled in right that's what we went out to the ring with that night that's why there was nothing to follow. That's why it flowed like it did. And it was it was basically, by and large, for the most part, called in the ring. And if you watch the match specifically, you can, you know, uh, you'll never see a mouth move, but you, you can see instances of communication right. as I'm laying it down. And the match happened like it did. And then, you know, the blood on top of the sharpshooter the ending image of me passing out and then Brett doing his, you know, altercation with Shamrock backing down from the challenge, you know, got me over as the, the you know, work in progress as a baby face and work in progress for him to be a heel. It's an iconic image of you and the sharpshooter with the blood streaming down your face. Was that part of the finish that you had talked with with, with Vince as well? No. Wow. That was a uh, special added uh, ingredient. <laughs> wow. That was called and on the fly? <laughs> called on the fly and delivered effectively. Wow. What, what was Vince's reaction to that? Well, I mean, it was, that was one of those. Uh, you know when you have a match which is so incredible, and then you come back and everybody's just going ape shit over it? Yeah. And it's like, uh, and that was a very special match. So it was, just, it was in a period where there wasn't any color. You know, it's kind of like a, a code. Yes. Getting color right now. Well, we got color, but it, it, it wasn't called by uh, by anybody uh, of authority. Uh, so it happened to be something with, with me and Brett. And boy, I tell you what, you know, he knew that blood was the exclamation point on a, a sentence in all caps. Yes. We did the right thing. We were headed in the right direction. That added a huge dynamic to what had just happened. Help tell that story uh, in color, no pun intended. <laughs> so he had no issues with that. You know, it's so amazing. I mean, how much the business has changed over the last 15 years or so in that you guys had that ability to do that and go out there and do make the call 
know that it's going to work, know that it's going to make everybody huge, huge money and come back and get you know patted on the back. If that happened nowadays, it doesn't matter who it was, you'd be so much in trouble, fined, suspended, fired, or whatever. Uh, I liked it kind of back in those days when Vince would let the professionals be professional and not have to know about every little single thing that was going to happen, especially if it was the right call. Well, the biggest thing for me, yes, I agree with you, and I just feel so bad is the word, but uh, the the landscape has changed so much. It's almost like these guys are walking on eggshells. Absolutely. Everything that they do in every aspect or regard of maybe not even just their life, but but it's, you know, for damn sure their professional life as a uh, sports entertainer uh, employed by that company. And, man, as, as a person who watches every now and then now, I love the business. I'm still part of the WWE, uh, and I still love the guys and gals that are doing it, but they've taken so much away from them uh, that it's hard for them to go out and experience really. Yes. Uh, what it's like to go out there and try to pick a path and have that, you know, okay, they're not buying this. I've got to switch gears and go in a different direction. So they've taken away a lot of the, the, the performance dynamics that go out with thinking on your feet, uh, succeeding yeah. or f- failing, having a change of direction, uh, and calling an audible. And sometimes, you know, you, you, know, you, you watch uh, you know, all the matches on a card and, you know, and everybody, everybody, for some reason, is working the headlock. Okay, well, I was planning on working the headlock, but since I watched all the matches, I'm either going to work a leg or an arm or yeah. back or something else. Got to call something on the fly. And then, you know, sometimes you go out there and it might be, you know, somewhere in Germany, U.K., and they're buying something completely different that they would buy in the States. Right. And go out there and just do that. But just, just as, as far as going back specifically to what you're talking about, they're basically dictating, you know, what you can and can't do with that ring. Well, and even in the promos, there will never be another Austin 316 that's called on the fly because you would have to approve it and you would have to get it written, and nobody would want to take a chance of just doing something on the fly because they think they're going to get heat for it. Well, especially with the fact that, you know, you have TNA as maybe, I don't really call yeah. it. I, 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 I love TNA. Uh, I, I, love, I love the guys that I know have jobs down there, and I, and I, I love pro wrestling. But, you know, so I'm not saying you have an alternative because you're probably going to be in a no-compete for a year. That's right. So with, with you know, basically it's a monopoly and you have no power. <laughs> uh, uh, if no. If you get fired or if you get in the doghouse, you're really in a bad place with no leverage. Yeah, you, you're, you're pretty much finished. So once again, like you said, that kills the confidence, that kills the rebel spirit of, of being in this business. And it also kind of kills the breakout characters that just happen almost organically the way that Steve Austin Stone Cold Steve Austin broke out do you feel that uh, that Steve Austin became the biggest star in wrestling uh, during the Mike Tyson feud leading up to Wrestlemania with Shawn Michaels uh, yeah yeah I, I do I think it was just an amazing uh, I think Vince was so perfect I remember that opening kind of promo that you guys had where you pushed uh, Tyson and Vince was freaking out, saying, you're ruining everything, you're ruining everything. Like It's almost like without Vince McMahon, there wouldn't have been a Stone Cold Steve Austin as well, with the Vince McMahon character, I should say. Well, there would have been a Stone Cold Steve Austin. There just wouldn't have been that angle. So certainly that angle would have been... But again, who knows if that angle would have crossed into uh, pop culture or just right. you know, uh, you know uh, water uh, you know, locker room or just water cooler conversation 
through accounting, you know, accounting firms. I mean, everybody was watching that stuff. Back everybody then. who didn't watch wrestling watched it. So yeah, maybe probably for sure it wouldn't have had the crossover. Stone Cold still would have had a great career, but make no mistake about it, Vince McMahon and Stone Cold Steve Austin. Uh, as far as feuding together and working together, was absolutely made for each other. Uh, and I've always said, you know, on all the cats I've ever worked with, you know, Vince is a clumsy, clumsy guy. <laughs> yeah. But he's one of my favorite guys to work with because everything that I put out from what I feel about the business into him, I get the exact same back. Just the way he, you know, loves to be hated. You know, that was his role. Yes. Back in, was was that heat standpoint. And you know the the the, the voice uh, of authority, and the, the the deliverance of authority was you know that that was his power, and for those two dynamics to what Stone Cold was with represented versus what he represented. It was uh, ag- absolutely box office gold. Well, it was perfect, too, because you were every man, like you mentioned earlier. Middle fingers, drinking beer, and beating up your boss. I mean, it's the ult- you, people were living vicariously through you. Who, who wouldn't want to give their boss, you know, kick him in the face or, or you know, stick an enema, <laughs> enema up their ass or whatever it was? What do you think it was that made Stone Cold so, so ridiculously over? Man, that's, that's, a, that's an interesting question because I remember back in the day I used to read a couple of things put out by uh, some of the some of the sheets or uh, or maybe it, was, maybe it was a Vince Russo comment, and I can't hold him uh, accountable for this because I don't know that he said this, but uh, I've heard some uh, wrestling pundits argue that anybody could have been stone cold given the storylines that I was. You know, I was just a guy that was doing it, but anybody could have done the same things I did put into the same scenario, which is an absolute ridiculous completely absolutely that's that's like saying that uh anybody could have been the undertaker yeah nobody could have been the undertaker but the undertaker yeah could could could, could you have called someone else that yes but would he have went 20 and 0 commanded to respect uh no of course not years ridiculous you know the far-reaching effects and the run that he's had Mm -hmm. no so uh what it is that got uh stone cold steve Austin so damn over it's hard for me to just sit there and flap my gums and, and say that I know because I really don't know. I just know that I worked real hard to try to put on a damn good show. And again, uh, by and large, that's me turned up in a competitive environment, the, the environment of sports entertainment, thinking, shoot, but working, and you know, using you, using my my competitive attributes in a competitive environment, and being not being afraid to go out on a limb. Because uh, you ain't got to push me out there. I'll go out on a limb. You might have to reel me in a little bit. Right. A couple times he did. But just go out there in the vein of entertainment and, and put on a show. And, you know, again, a lot of, a lot of my stuff was, was uh, a fluke and luck because of, you know, the things that happened. But for some reason, sometimes, Chris, I, 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 I sometimes believe in a little bit of predestiny. Yes, I think you can alter that course, uh, but also, and I don't think everything is absolutely laid out for you. But for some reason, the things that have happened in my my life and and my journey to to be that guy and now where I'm at now, just always seem to work out. Even when the chips are down, with the injuries or whatnot, I always found a way to get back on my horse. And hey, man, at the end of the day, you know how it is. Just give it everything you got. Well, I think that's exactly the point of what I was saying, and I think it's very interesting to me how huge uh, Steve Austin was. And as far as there's been a lot of discussion over the last few weeks over 
um, Triple H did a promo talking about you were never the guy. Well, to me, there was only four guys in the, in the modern era of, of the WWE that were the guy. That was Hogan, it was Austin, it was Rock, and it's John Cena. It's interesting to me that there was two huge super duper stars working at the same time in the same company as as you and The Rock. We'll never see characters that over, that popular, but still very different from each other. Rock was kind of the more, you know, uh, metrosexual type guy or whatever, and you were Stone Cold Steve Austin, every man. How, how, how fun was it for you to work with The Rock, having somebody that's just as popular and just as over or very close in, in the company with you at that time? Man, it's, uh, you, you want that, Chris, because you know... You want the person you're dancing with to be as over, more over, whatever. That's right. That's you know you want the best dance partner you can have, and so the fact that Rock and I had great chemistry, we loved working with each other. We were built for each other. I brought out the best in him. He brought out the best in me. So we had that. But on top of that, when you have the people that were loving me or hating him, or later, you know, loving me and loving him from a WrestleMania 17 standpoint. We were Houston-based, so he had a little bit of heel dynamic, but just two, two over guys. Hey, man, you, you that's something that you pray for every single night, is to work with a cat that's over like a, you know, hell. Right. Oh, totally. And that, that's why it worked so well. Like I said, it was almost uh, catching lightning in the bottle to have a Steve Austin and a Rock together. Do you feel that, in retrospect, that it was the wrong move for you to turn heel when you did after working with Rock at WrestleMania? Oh, Chris. Chris. Worst call I ever made in my <laughs> life other than refusing a job for Brock Lesnar at Atlanta. But, you know, that was my idea. And Vince always likes to do something big at WrestleMania. He didn't right. have anything big planned. So me being the rocket scientist that I am, uh, the rocket scientist that I am, you know, I figured, okay, when you're a hot baby face and you turn heel, you're a hot-ass heel and you can draw money like that. And, you know, right. Or vice versa, you know. And, and by and large, that, that is true for the most part, if the time is right to turn. Mm-hmm. Well, clearly the time wasn't right for me to turn. I was like, you know, to put it into terms like this, it was like everybody loved John Wayne for what he stood for. And so he did not ever need to be a bad guy in one of his movies. and never was. Right. So, you know, people didn't want to hate me. So, you know, but me, because I always loved working heel more than a babyface. So it was going to be a chance for me to have fun, go back to work at Hill, doing what I love to do. And with that being said, I love working babyface, too. Obviously, that's where I made my money. But I liked working Hill. I like being a piece of trash. I like, I like talking trash. I like cheating. You know, that was right. my style of wrestling. And I, and I did a lot of that at Stone Cold Babyface. But anyway, so it was a bad idea, but Vince bought into it with me. And if uh, if I could go back in time... I would have done the exact same match with The Rock, hit him with the chair, and then when Vince and I went to shake hands, I would have said, watch the stunner. <laughs> I would have kicked him in his gut, and I would have dropped him on his chin, and I, then I told him backstage, hey, dude, it just wasn't right. I wasn't feeling it. Right. And that's what I, that, that's what I wish I would have done. So, no, the heel turn was a bad idea. It was 100% my idea. I've got to own that. Well, you know, it's interesting. The one good thing that came out of it is probably one of my favorite matches I've ever had in my career, which technically doesn't exist because of what happened with with Chris at the end of his life. But it was the power trip of you and Hunter 
against me and Benoit in San Jose on Raw for the tag team titles. That was one of the greatest matches I've ever been involved with. Do you remember that? Man, I gotta, I gotta get back on YouTube and watch that. It's been a long ass time. Go, go watch it. it. It's funny because you know some internet sites and wrestling pundits, as you use the word, have voted voted it as the greatest Raw match of all time, and it, it is. I watched it the other day. Just uh, for, it was the anniversary of it. Someone uh, smartened me up about it on Twitter, and I watched it back. And it was such a great match, and the crowd was so insane. And we had, we had. We had a great match, man. It's, you have to. You should go check it out. The finish of that I, match is one of the best. They give us? Uh, we had about twenty minutes, maybe twenty-five minutes. It was a long okay, match. It's just the match where Hunter tore his quad. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I still remember the inner workings of that, but yeah, I, I now I certainly remember that. Yeah, that was a, it was a, it was it was a, it was a great moment. But let me ask you another question. You mentioned you said your other regret is when you you walked out uh, refusing to do a job for Brock Lesnar. Why? Why in retrospect or did you think that was the wrong move? Well, I handled the situation uh, like a total ass, you know. Yeah. What, what, what had happened, long story short, you know, I was, uh, you know, go, working Columbus the night before Monday Night Raw. I was working Flair in a cage. Jim Ross calls me. I'm laying in a hotel and, uh, you know, just kind of resting up for the match because I got into town early, made the drive, and he told me creative and uh, told me they wanted Brock to beat me. And I'm thinking, okay, hold it. I'm drawing stupid money right now. Right. And... You know, obviously now WWF has spent a lot of money getting me in this position. I busted my ass getting my, getting myself in this position. Uh, guys that draw stupid money don't just happen overnight. Yes. So then all of a sudden, do you you want me to do a job for a guy? Now, I, I love Brock Lesnar, and you know he's a monster. And as soon as he walked in the doors, everybody saw a massive potential in the guy. But you know, for me to do a, a job for him without any kind of buildup, or you know, it's, it's a match with no, you know, two or three weeks talking about, or this right. pay per view match is what it was. Yeah. So anyway, so anyway, uh, he told me the creative. I said, well, if you know that's going to be the case, I won't be there. And so he said, okay, I'm just telling you what the old man told me. So he calls the old man and tells him. Jim calls me back. Hey, call the old man when you get through working. Vince gives me the scenario over the phone. I said, that's what we're doing, huh? He goes, that's what we're doing. And I said, okay. Well, when I said okay and you can't see my eyes, I mean, okay, I ain't going to be there. Right. <laughs> so that's why I don't like uh, phone calls when we're talking business. So mm-hmm. anyway, and me being at the place I was in my head at the time, you know, I'd, hell, I was, I was drinking a lot of damn whiskey and beer. And, hey, I showed up every night. I was the first guy in the dressing room. I was the last guy to leave, and I worked my ass off. But, yeah, man, you know, we were running hard back in, Chris, yep. you know. I sure were. And so sure I were. just said, piss on these guys. I said, you know, why would they try to do this? Anyway, I got on the airplane, flew back to San Antonio. It was stupid, Chris, because, you know, you, you got to own up to some responsibility and accountability and show up and honor your deal and, uh, you know, you're, you're packed with the boys and your job. And so I should have showed up like a man, come up with a solution. Could have been a different solution. Could have been just don't even do the match. But show up and talk to Vince face-to-face, solve the problem in some way, some fashion, and get through it like, you know, a grown yeah. man. And, uh, you know, like I said, I took my ball and went home. But I thought I was being poked with a stick. I, I thought my reason was valid. That being said, I handled it uh, about as badly as you could. And that's just uh, the biggest regret I have in uh, my career as a pro wrestler. 
It's interesting, though, man. Like you said, sometimes it's hard to see the forest through the trees. And when you're on the road like that, I've been through it before, too. You do crazy things. You make stupid decisions because it's a lot of pressure and it's not easy being on the road. It's, it's very, very hard. So sometimes you do make the wrong decisions. Uh, a decision that you didn't get to make on your own is when, is when you had to retire, when your neck was too bad and all the things that went wrong. How was it for you? Was it hard having to step down knowing that your body had given out on you? Was that a hard pill to swallow? Boy, I tell you what, yeah, it took a couple of years to swallow that pill, and it it was uh, it was it was a bad part of my life, and you know, I I, I just uh, just I hunted, I fished, I drank a lot of damn whiskey, yeah, and just tried to turn back, as I call it, into a civilian. You know, I wasn't a road warrior anymore, going up and down the roads and. You know, my single mission in life was to be a pro wrestler since my rock star dreams had been crushed. Yeah. And there I was at, on top of the world riding a damn lightning bolt. And all of a sudden someone says, all right, dude, get off your lightning bolt and just go back to living a normal life. Uh, very hard to do. And it took me a couple of years to come, come to grips with it. But now, you know, I did. That's been obviously several years ago now. People always ask me, I say, man, don't you miss the business? And I can honestly tell them, yeah, I used to miss the business. Now when I look back, I have so many fond memories of when I was in the business. But to answer your question, I don't miss the business, but I do still love it. Would you ever go back for another match? You know, that's the thing, Chris. It's, you know, it's, it's like, Why? Because, you know, why right. you go to WrestleMania and to totally prepare for that? How long have you been out now? Um, I come and go, man, but I've been gone for about five months. And every single day people ask me, when are you going back? It doesn't matter okay. what I do. So I know, I know where, you, where, where yeah, they come. So, so, okay, I, I still train uh, in the gym very hard, but I've done no cardio. To, to totally get ready for a high-caliber match like WrestleMania 30, I would think that would need a three-month training window. Right. For timing, getting back in the ring, taking bumps. I mean, to do it right. So then you, you do that, and you bump for three months. You get into storylines. You go, you know, to the Monday Night Raws. You do the creative. You have the big blast-off match at WrestleMania. And then there it is. There's the big match at WrestleMania. Then what? <laughs> Then you know, yeah, you know. Then three months later, you're gonna get your paycheck after all the pay-per-view counts come back, and then you cash your check. Then what? You know? Yeah. You know where? Where do you go? Well, you, and you know what's you know what the fans are gonna ask you when are you coming back? When yeah. are you coming back? You know, so, that's... Yeah, I mean, yeah you, you can make some money, but it's just like, dude, you get all revved up, and then you have the, you you yeah, have your 30 I got you. Window, and then it's like, then what? Hey man, then you gotta, you know, decompress, download. I mean, maybe recover. I mean, you know, you, you got yourself back in the mode. Right. I know where I'm at in my life right now. Where, you know, anything's possible. And being involved in some capacity would be fun. But also, Chris, like this, uh, you know, being very, very candid. Uh, I like the way I operated back then. I like the way the landscape was back then. I like the creative liberties and freedoms I had back then. I don't know 
that walking in there right now, I would have those same freedoms, mm-hmm. and I don't know that I could operate in that system. Right. I got you, man. Like you said, times change, and, and you know, um, I, I respect that. You know, I think it takes a lot to kind of, like you said, decompress and get out of the wrestling business. The cool thing is, though, is that you have other options, as do I, to still stay creative and still entertain, because that's what we do. We're showmen. And wrestling was just one part of what we do, of what we did. And there's so much more that we can do and are doing. Two last questions, Steve. Favorite opponent? Well, but, but before, you, before you ask those two last questions, just let me say that, you know, when I, when I say what next, I'm just, I mean that on a personal front for me, Steve Austin, as a person. Because I know there's so many of my, my fans that follow me on Twitter and who listen to my show, the Steve Austin show, that would love to see me in a match. And I love my fans first and foremost, and they're they're people that, that you know I worked hard for to build up that fan base. They've been very very loyal to me, and I and I really really treasure them. And I know they'd like to see me in a match, but you just got to understand that the shoes that I'm in now and where I'm at now, and so I don't say that to insult you or that you wouldn't want me to to be in another match. It's just a personal thing with me. Uh, again, I, I love the wrestling fans, my fans, and I love the WWE. Please no. ask me your last two questions. Yeah, no, like just just to finish, follow up on that. I think uh, that's why our fans are so amazing. They would love to see us wrestling until we're like eighty years old, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it. it doesn't work that way. Uh, favorite opponent of all time? Well, I tell you what, that's just so. I never work with Steamboat in a high-profile thing, but just think so much of him. But then, you know, uh, just Brett the Hitman Hart, uh, just because I'm such a fan of Brett. Right. I think a lot of guys who uh, who made money in the business, I know some of them respect Brett. A lot of people just think Brett wasn't all that much. Brett Hart is one of the greatest of all time, man. I, I, I love watching that guy's matches. I love it. I, just, I love working with him. Uh, just because uh, I, I just he he was at a very high level in a in a low key way, I, I, I liked what he brought to the whole game, mm-hmm. and uh, then I would have to say The Rock just from a pure, again, I was built to work with that guy. He was built to work with me. Obviously, we've had great matches with other people, right? But when you talk about putting just two cats in the ring at any time, if you could tell me, okay, you're working Rock, badass. We talk you walking with Brad Hart, badass. Don't get me wrong. You got your Shawn Michaels. Sure. You got all got people. But if you're just talking about, I, and I, I got to say those two rather than just one. Sure, of course. Um, now, if the one match that stands out in your head, not, not, maybe your favorite match or favorite matches. I got to just go with 13 because of what it meant to me as far as getting me, you know, in, in, in babyface mode and to, to your father facilitate. Things. I mean, the first match that we had, I think, was in Survivor Series in '96, was a starting point. But 13 for what it meant to the business, uh, for the business, for both of our careers, and then 17 just from an electrical standpoint. New attendance record in the Astrodome. Uh, two of the hottest cats in one of the hottest periods ever in the history of pro wrestling. Lighten it up in five-star fashion. 17. Amazing, amazing matches and amazing conversation, Steve. I really appreciate it. This has been so cool to talk with you and hear all this stuff. Obviously, uh, Steve Austin Show, available on Podcast One. Steve is on Twitter, at Steve Austin BSR. Is that correct? You got it. And do we see another season of, of Redneck Island? You know, I'm hearing uh, 
I'm hearing good things that there will be a season four. Uh, I think I should have that news in another couple of weeks. And I've got another thing that I'm fixed to announce. Can't do that yet, but I've got some good things uh, going on in the pipeline. I'm hard at work creating some audio warpaths of my own on my, on my podcast. But those outside, those outside projects keep rolling in, and I'm staying about as busy as I want to, and I've been very thankful to stay like I have. Well, Steve, like I said, man, what you see is what you get with you. You're always one of my favorite people that I've met in the business and, and in life. And thank you so much for doing this show, and uh, we'll get a chance to talk with you very soon, my friend. Hey, man, always good talking to you, and I'd love to have you on my show here in a couple of weeks uh, when, all you, when you get dialed in and ready to rock and roll with me. Anytime, man. Anytime. I'd love it. I'll let you get a couple shows underneath your belt and just so we'll have some stuff to talk about and some common ground. Sounds good, Steve. I appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. Always. Take care, Chris. You too, brother. Steve Austin, one of the biggest stars of all time. A great guy, and thanks to him for joining me on Talk is Jericho. Thanks to all of you for joining me on Talk is Jericho. We'll see you next week right here. Stay cool, stay hard. God bless you all. Good night. Thanks for listening to Talk is Jericho. Don't forget, every Wednesday there's a brand new episode of Talk is Jericho at podcastone.com.